Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Okay, welcome, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Philip Munoz. I'm the director of Notre Dame's program in constitutional studies. I'm a professor here in political science and uh, at Notre Dame Law School. Uh, it's my pleasure to uh, welcome you to jo uh, join our conversation on the 2020 election. I've been looking forward to this uh, for quite some time and we have two uh, real Washington insiders uh, with us uh, with us today. Um, you can learn more about our, our events at uh, constudies.nd.edu, uh, like our Facebook page or and follow us on Twitter. Uh, this is our last uh, event of the uh, semester, which is winding down here at Notre Dame, but we'll be back in action uh, after, after the new year. Um, we have a uh, tradition in the program. We let our student, undergraduate student fellows, I should mention for all the Notre Dame students watching, if you're interested in the constitutional studies minor uh, or the Tocqueville fellows program, uh, the con, uh, con studies minor, you can find information on our website uh, or come uh, talk to me or email me. Uh, the Tocqueville Fellows are a group of uh, about two dozen undergraduate students who uh, meet with our uh, visiting guests uh, in, in usual times. We would have uh, uh, Mr. Teixeira and Mr. Olson here to campus and our student fellows would share a meal with them. Um, but we set up uh, uh, private events for them. We have book, book discussion groups, weekend seminars. So if you're an undergraduate Notre Dame student and you're interested in politics, please uh, let me know and uh, you can find out more about the Tocqueville program. One of the things the Tocqueville fellows do is they introduce our uh, visiting speakers. So I'm going to introduce uh, Nick Abushadid. Nick is a uh, on-leave senior, uh, a PLS major and uh, uh, fellow of the, fellow of the uh, program. So Nick, can you introduce our speakers? Welcome to all in attendance. Today's event is entitled the 2020 election what to expect, who will win, what's at stake. As you know, these are fairly simple questions, which I'm sure that both of our speakers will answer easily and correctly. Well, in all seriousness, this election and the circumstances surrounding it is anything but normal or certain. The very fact that we have to host this event virtually is a clear indicator of how different the times we live in are. So taking up questions of expectations, predictions and consequences with regard to this election not only requires keen insight, but it also requires remarkable courage. We're lucky to have two speakers taking up those questions today. Henry Olson is a Washington Post columnist focusing on politics, populism, and American conservative thought, and a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Previously, he was the vice president and director at, a, at the American Enterprise Institute vice president of the Manhattan Institute and the president of the Commonwealth Foundation. He authored The Working Class Republican and co-authored The Four Faces of the Republican Party. His past election predictions have been praised for their uncanny accuracy, so I'm looking forward to hearing his thoughts today. Rui Teixeira is a senior fellow at American Progress and co-director at the States of Change, Demographics and a Democracy Project, a collaboration that brings together a center the Center for American Progress, the Bipartisan Policy Center, the Democracy Fund's Voter Study Group, and demographer William Frey of the Brookings Institute. His most recent book is the, 
is the optimistic leftist, why the 21st century will be better than you think. And his 2002 book, The Emerging Democratic Party, uh, the, Emer the Emerging Democratic Majority, written with John Judas, was the most widely discussed political book of that year and generated praise across the political spectrum. We're lucky to have Mr. Rolson and Mr. Teixeira join us for the event. Please join me in welcoming our two speakers. Thank you very much for that uh, kind introduction, uh, Nick. Uh, I am going first, but in reality, Rui went first. Rui went first in 2002 with The Emerging Democratic Majority, a book that has proven to be as prescient about our current political state as the book which he was trying to supplant and emulate. Kevin Phillips, the emerging Republican majority was when Phillips wrote it in 1968, like Phillips's projection of a Republican era. It took a few years to come about, but uh, the world that we are living in is with one notable exception, largely the one that he foresaw. And I look forward to Rui uh, talking in his presentation a little bit about the demographic changes that he both foresaw and the challenges that uh, they pose for American democracy, but also for the soon-to-be regnant Democratic Party. Because yes, uh, the contours of my final prediction will and change before I finalize them over the weekend, but it would take a polling failure of unprecedented magnitude for Joe Biden not to be president. Uh, the question, the real question uh, in the absence of an unprecedented polling failure is the degree of the margin and how many Democrats he can sweep into office with him. I'm reminded of a old uh, story, uh, perhaps apocryphal, of a judge in Brooklyn in the 1936 election who was upset because the Democratic Party boss was not putting up his posters and he came in to the boss's headquarters and stomped on the floor and beat his fist on the table and insisted his posters be put up. And the boss put his arm around the man, led him to a big window, and he said, do you see the harbor, New York harbor out there? And the man said, yes, I see that. And he said, do you see the tugboat coming into the harbor? And squinted a little and said, yes, I see that. And he says, look a little closer. Do you see the garbage that... The tugboat is bringing in its wake into the harbor. And he said, yes, I, I can see that too. And the boss looked, turned and looked to him and said, the tugboat is Franklin Roosevelt. You are the garbage. And what he meant to say with that is that the ticket leader would bring in the people below him. And we are seeing a return of that sort of straight ticket voting to America, that Biden's margin of victory will largely determine who follows him and in what numbers. A victory as large as 10, 11, or 12 points, which some national polls are suggesting, would be not only the greatest defeat of a sitting president running for re-election since Herbert Hoover in 1932, it would exceed, for example, the margin by which Jimmy Carter lost in the landslide defeat he suffered in 1980, but a margin that large would likely swell Democratic Senate members to as many as 55 or 56, given the seats that are in play in the demographics of those states. On the other hand, a Biden victory of as small as five points would still give him the White House, but he could very well not have a Senate majority as uh, the cusp seat for Senate control that most demographers and political experts look at. 
North Carolina, is expected to flip to Biden only if Biden wins in the five to six point range nationwide. So while I think most of us would be comfortable saying Biden will win, the question of how many people he has with him is an open question. And uh, Republicans will certainly hope that there is a secret Trump vote out there that if not able to propel the president to victory will be large enough to propel some of the candidates below and keep some of those pieces of garbage from coming in with the SS Biden. I think we should note that this isn't going to be a Biden victory as much as it's going to be a not Trump victory. Polls demonstrate when they're asked that when people who say they're voting for Biden are asked, are you voting for Joe Biden or uh, voting for the Democratic nominee or are you voting against Trump? Nearly half of Biden's voters in most polls say they're voting against Trump. Fewer than a third say they're actually voting for Biden qua Biden. That means he could very well have a mandate in the sense of a popular vote, but he doesn't have a personal mandate in the sense that many presidents who win that will have. I look forward to Rui to perhaps talking about what that might mean for governance if, in fact, he comes in with a moderate majority as opposed to a landslide majority. But that last fact, the not Trump, is really the decisive factor here is that Donald Trump was elected largely because in 2016, nearly one in five voters did not like either he or Hillary Clinton. They decided late in the campaign and broke decisively in his favor, according to the exit poll. That, not any polling failure, is why Donald Trump surprised most analysts on election night. Uh, They could have foreseen that, but they didn't. Uh, And so consequently, they were surprised at what happened. There is no such pool of undecided or dual-hating voters. People do dislike candidates, but they are lining up in the usual pattern. If you like your party's candidate, you don't like the other person's candidate. There's very little of that dual dislike. That which existed earlier in the year was mainly because progressives were reluctantly voting for Biden. And so consequently, the cross tabs and the polling were showing that Biden was winning those people. Well, Biden's opinion uh, favorability has improved among progressives as the campaign has gone up forward. So we now have a very small group of those people who are genuinely conflicted. We also have a very small number of undecideds. People made up their mind about Donald Trump and have pretty much stuck to it. Donald Trump's job approval rating has never reached 50% in the Gallup poll or in the Real Clear Politics or in the 538 polling average. That's a first for any president in modern polling. Even those who end up uh, in the depths, like Jimmy Carter did at one point, or Richard Nixon or George W. Bush, have at one point reached 50% or more in the polls. That's never been the case with Donald Trump. It's also always been the case that because of the unique nature of Trump's coalition, uniquely dependent on whites without a college degree and where they live, which is concentrated in states in the upper Midwest, he didn't need 50% of the vote to win. He basically needs to lose the popular vote by somewhere in no more than three, maybe three and a half percent nationwide to have a shot of repeating what he did in 2016, winning the electoral college without winning the popular vote. What that means is that he needed to get his job approval rating north of 47% to have a realistic shot of losing the popular vote by that narrower margin. Trump has been above that level for six days throughout his presidency, and it's telling what those six days are, were. 
March 26th to April 2nd of this year. In other words, during that brief period at the onset of the pandemic, when what's called the rally round the flag effect, people's natural instinct to trust their leaders in a time of crisis was in vogue. He very quickly lost that initial burst and his ratings continued to drop until they hit a nadir in the middle of our summer of discontent. Rest of the world, leaders who play safety over opportunity or safety over freedom or safety over the economy, depending how you put it, all saw at larger bumps and they have all endured for the most part, left and right, it doesn't matter. If you put safety first, you are being rewarded by your voters. Uh, and that's true in uh, elections that have been held and in polls that are being conducted. But Donald Trump didn't. And consequently, he not only uh, didn't get up to the level that he needed to aim at, but he dropped. Um, despite all of the talk about Trump's divisiveness, the fact is polls suggest he will do slightly better among non-white voters than he did four years ago. Virtually all polls agree that he'll do better among Latinos, and some polls argue he might do marginally better among Blacks. His defeat will come because of a movement among white voters, uh, college voters and non-college voters, and Rui has been uh, magisterial in his discussion of non-college and college white voters, but particularly the latter, and I'd love to hear his latest thoughts on that. The question for the, then is, this was a referendum on Trump, Joe Biden was never successfully defined in a way that was anywhere close to as scary as Hillary Clinton was defined, both pre her campaign and during her campaign. And Donald Trump uh, never succeeded in recasting people's opinions about him. Not that he seriously ever tried. I think one could see that there were many opportunities where a more seasoned and agile politician would have changed their game a little bit, but instead, he continued to double down and triple down on the same tactics and the same approach that he believed won him the race in 2016. And it looks like he will discover the hard way that in business, a 46% market share makes you a billionaire. In politics, a 46% market share makes you a loser. The Senate will likely go Democratic if Biden wins by anything more than five and a half or six points. Um, I am projecting right now a 51 to 47 Democratic Senate with two seats in Georgia that will remain undecided until runoffs in January. Uh, the, again, the larger Biden's margin, the bigger that'll be, the smaller Biden's margin, the smaller that'll be. But he'd have to lose, win by five and a half points or less for there to be a serious doubt about him not having at least a tenuous hold on the Senate. Democrats are projected to gain uh, seats uh, in the House. They picked up 40 seats last time, net. Uh, my current projection is they'll pick up 14 seats uh, uh, more. Uh, they could pick up as many as 20. They could pick up as few as five. It's a range and it's very hard to know, but again, uh, suburban areas and areas with large numbers of white working class voters who are disenchanted with Trump uh, could very well uh, be bringing many more seats into Nancy Pelosi's fold. I think with that, I'll close my remarks and listen to Rui as he tries to um, uh, tell us the future and uh, uh, to uh, quote Homer or to paraphrase Homer Simpson, I for one welcome my new progressive overlords. 
Mr. Tashera, thank you very much. Henry, Mr. Tashera, the floor is yours. Rui needs to unmute. We have you, we have you mute, muted still. Myself. Okay, now everyone can hear my uh, pearls of wisdom. That's great. Um, okay, so Henry kind of stole my thunder a little bit uh, here in terms of predicting the election outcome. Because to be honest, I don't really have anything to say specifically about that that differs markedly from what Henry said. I think that the data are pretty overwhelming at this point and incredibly stable uh, in terms of uh, you know, the probable outcome. I'm just looking at 538's prediction before we got on, they're now up to 89%, it keeps ticking up. The economist uh, model has been well over 90% for quite a while. So, um, and you look at the trend line in the polls, you look at what happened after the debate, um, it's just not happening for uh, the orange one in the Oval Office. So, uh, you know, the safest prediction at this point is, yeah, he's probably going to lose. And if I was going to predict, is he going to lose by a lot or a little, I'd say probably a lot. Again, given the trend lines, given what we're seeing out of the individual state and national polls, um, which should translate into, uh, as uh, Henry was mentioning, uh, the Democrats controlling the Senate. So, but it's it's still definitely up in the air how many senators are get, but it's it's likely to happen. So uh, I don't differ at all from Henry in terms of that prognostication. I mean, we now are close enough to the election. The race has been stable for long enough, as Henry has pointed out. There just ain't that many undecideds. I mean, you know that you can't squeeze blood from a stone, um, and there's not enough undecideds there probably for Trump to uh, surprise us on, on election day or when the votes are, the votes are counted. So uh, I think it's not in the bag by any means. You know, if Trump has a one in 10 chance of winning, that's still a one in 10 chance of winning. Um, but uh, it doesn't look good for Team Red. Uh, so why is this? Why is this? Um, well, as Henry has alluded to somewhat gently, basically people detest Donald Trump. They didn't like him to begin with. He's always had incredibly high strong disapproval ratings. Uh, those have only solidified over time. Obviously the, the COVID uh, crisis and the related economic crash has sort of basically taken uh, you know, the last props of, of Trump's presidency out from under him. So the problem for the Democrats always has been, and I've said this many times, how do you convert Trump disapproval into Democratic votes? And that should have been the only real important issue in the Democratic primary. It was not. There were lots of other issues. But the reason why Biden got the nomination in the end is people really wanted to beat Donald Trump. And they, you know, whether they articulated in this way or not, they figured he was the guy who could best turn Trump disapproval into Democratic votes. And you know what? They were right about that. They were absolutely right about that. Um, and we can see that in the demographics of the Biden vote as it's developed so far. One thing I wrote about uh, quite a while ago is um, I kind of revisited the emerging democratic majority thesis, which, you know, for people not familiar with it, you might take the usual suspects of the democratic coalition, uh, non-white voters, college educated professionals, younger generations, uh, you know, cosmopolitan urbanites and, and what have you. Uh, and, you know, the, the theory was that these voters were going to become an increasingly large part of the electorate, which should disadvantage the Republican Party, and over time tilt the political terrain in favor of, of, of the Democrats, uh, which had a lot of truth to it, I think. 
But the part of it that a lot of people chose to ignore in the Democratic Party, and I wrote about this rather sternly recently, is, you know, it the country's still 70% white. It's still well over 40% white non-college in terms of the voting electorate. It was never a good idea to think you could rely simply on these growing constituencies to craft a national majority and a majority in key states. You always needed a, at least a solid minority of the white non-college vote in particular, given the white college vote was, was now moving in your favor, but you couldn't afford to lose that much off of your margin. Uh, increase your deficit too much among white non-college voters. But that's exactly what happened. Um, after the Obama victory in uh, 2008, and people didn't seem to change their mind too much in 2012, despite all the warning signs, um, they figured, well, we could just ignore that part of the population and we can just rely on our growing constituencies. And, uh, you know, we can be as, uh, you know, as woke as we want to be. Uh, as it were, uh, to uh, use a term that, that uh, has become popular. Um, and they paid the price in some sense in 2016. Uh, Clinton was not an optimizing candidate to at all appeal to white non-college voters. There were a lot of problems with that campaign. We won't get into them, but suffice it to say that Hillary's campaign was an exemplar of, you know, the lack of, apparent lack of interest in the white non-college population, which was uh, registered by these voters. Um, yeah, some of them may have been motivated by so-called racial resentment and would have voted for Trump no matter how great a candidate Hillary was, but they lost a lot of other voters at the margin who delivered the key states to Trump and uh, helped sur uh, fuel this populist upsurge. So one thing Biden has managed to do is he not only has very strong non-white majorities, um, though slightly less at this point, uh, it looks like relative to Clinton. We'll see how it turns out on election day. Not only does he have the younger generation votes, not only does he have the college educated whites, particularly women, but he's drastically shaved the margin among white non-college voters all over the country and in particular in the Rust Belt states that delivered the election to Donald Trump in 2016. Polls differ about how much he shaved that margin you know, my sense is, you know, my the data I have from the Nationscape survey, which is a 6,000 respondent a week survey done by the Democracy Fund in UCLA, uh, is he might have shaped it by as much as 15 to 20 points as a, as a margin. Um, other analyses, for instance, uh, Nate Cohn's recently New York Times maybe puts it at more like 10 points, though I think it's actually larger in a lot of the Rust Belt states. But believe me, that's enough. That is enough to uh, deliver a majority coalition uh, in the current state of American demographics and, and politics. Um, you know, we're looking at, remember, these states, these Rust Belt states that Donald Trump won in 2016, you know, they were, they're, a lot of them were well over 50% white non-college voters. How you could, like, you know, crash your margin among these voters by 15 or 20 points and think you could possibly win these states is ridiculous. On the other hand, if you can push that margin back in your direction as Joe Biden has done in this election, you're now in very good shape to take the state. And that's exactly what, what we see. Uh, we did an analysis uh, just you know, after the 2016 election that showed among other things that you know, given how narrow Trump's margins were in these states that simply the process of underlying demographic change, the rise of white college voters, the increasing share of non-whites even in slow growing Rust Belt states was enough to erase Trump's margin. Therefore, 
what he would need to do in the coming election in 2020 was increase his margin among white non-college voters. He was always completely dependent on not only holding the white non-college vote, but probably increasing his margin among these voters. What Joe Biden has been able to do is exactly reverse that necessity for Trump. He's actually taken votes away from him. He hasn't just contained the Trump white non-college vote, he's reduced it. So, and that is the key to why Joe Biden is leading by so much. He might be, he might be leading anyway, even if Trump had held the white non-college vote, even if he decreased it slightly. But the fact that he's reduced it by 10 or 15 points is why he's leading by so much uh, in the national vote and why he's probably gonna win, you know, probably gonna win a resounding victory in 2020. So we may, we're seeing the emergence of what we might call the Biden coalition, which brings together the classic uh, Obama era constituencies with a significantly larger share of the white non-college and white senior vote and so on. Uh, the question is, um, can he hold this coalition together? Once he gets into office, does he have a mandate? Uh, what is the mandate? What do mandates even mean? Who knows? But, um, you know, I think Henry's correct that this is in many ways a referendum on the incumbent. <laughs> How could it not be? Uh, people don't like Donald Trump. They want something different. Um, but do they necessarily buy into the platform the Democrats have promulgated? Heck, most people don't even know what it is. So how can they buy into it? Um, but I think what they do want, and this is the real challenge for Biden, in my opinion, is they want the COVID crisis contained. They want the economy to be backfiring in all cylinders. They want to feel safe. They want to see the unemployment rate go down. They want to see the country growing again. They want to bring the country back together. Um, and that will take some doing. As uh, you know, I think uh, Paul Krugman in essence put in a recent column, move fast and spend big. Um, and that's probably what they need to do. So they're gonna need to put some of these boutique issues to the side that some democratic constituencies are concerned about and move heaven and earth to get a big package through Congress, again, assuming they control the Senate, that actually can do those things that Biden is promising to do in terms of containing the coronavirus, getting the economy moving again, getting the country, uh, giving the country a sense of moving forward out of the chaos of, of the last part of the Trump years. So I think that's the challenge. I think, I think that, you know, Biden has a mandate to do that if he has anything. So if he can do that, he can keep this Biden coalition together for a while until, you know, the infighting is inevitable in any coalition. But I think his challenge is clear in the first part of his term if he has one. Uh, and I'm mildly optimistic he can do it. But, you know, that's why they hold the elections. And that's why we live in the real world, not in a fantasy world. We just have to see how it works out if, if Biden uh, does, in fact, get into office and they do, in fact, take the Senate. So I guess I'll just leave it there. Um, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of questions out there about lots of stuff. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Deshera. And thank you both gentlemen, very interesting. I wonder if I might just pose a question uh, and really to both of you, you, you largely agreed. Um, you both seem to see, see this as a, uh, an anti-Trump election. Um, folks don't like uh, Donald Trump and uh, Mr. Teixeira emphasized uh, uh, white uh, non-college voters moving uh, towards Biden. Um, are those white non-college voters moving towards Biden because they don't like Trump? And what, what don't they like about him? I mean, is there one particular thing? Is it his character, his policies? Uh, how Can we get be, uh, behind these numbers a little bit more? Well, it's kind of all of the above, I think. Um, 
you know, you have to remember a lot of these white non-college voters voted for Trump. Some of them, in fact, vote for Obama in 2012, a significant, uh, there's a significant move there. They didn't necessarily vote for him because they knew all about him and they thought he was, ab you know, would absolutely be a fantastic president. They just thought Hillary would be worse. In many ways, this was a lot of an anti-Hillary vote. These voters typically feel somewhat ignored by the way the country is evolving, ignored by the National Democratic Party, ignored by the elites. I mean, to some extent, you know, I mean, there was a, a big deal made of how much they might resent immigrants or black people, whatever. They also represent white professional elites who they don't think look down on them. I mean, the classic deplorables gaffe. Uh, that Hillary uh, had in the 2016 election. So they're ready to try something new. And Trump, remember, he ran as, he actually had an image as sort of a weird kind of moderate in a way. He was going to fix the healthcare system. He was going to do something about trade. He was going to bring back the manufacturing jobs. I mean, he spoke directly to these populist sentiments that are economically tinged and have a lot to do with how these communities have evolved. He spoke to that very clearly. And, you know, People heard the mess, they said, hey, let's give it a try. Let's see what happens. Um, but people always had some reservations, particularly the women among them. And we're now, you know, he didn't really endear himself by the way he conducted himself in office in a general sense. A lot of people had questions about that. The manufacturing, bringing back the manufacturing jobs actually never really happened much in these places. Um, their lives just didn't improve that much. And then maybe he could have still made the sale because the overall macro economy was kind of okay-ish and, you know, blah, 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 the unemployment rate had come down, but that was totally blown apart by the COVID and related economic crisis. So they're just tired of the guy and they don't really believe that he's going to make things better or he can even can make things better. And they kind of like Joe Biden, you know, yeah, maybe he's a Democrat, but at least he's not crazy. And at least he seems kind of like the guy who kind of guy who gets people like them, doesn't look down on them. And, uh, you know, they're certainly not opposed to the idea of the government playing a big role in trying to get the economy moving and containing the COVID crisis. They could care less. I mean, these voters were never, you know, Republicans always mistook their white non-college support for, you know, a libertarian anti-government vote. It's not at all. I mean, these voters are very have a very diverse set of issues. Uh, points of view on on the role of government, um, on you know what they really want out of the world economically, what they think about the safety net, and so on. Especially the safety net for them. <laughs> so uh, you know, uh, Trump promised much, delivered little, and people are tired of him. I wouldn't disagree that much with Rui. I would say that Trump uh, hurt himself by the way in which he became more and more orthodoxly Republican during his career. Uh, that the same thing that many of my conservative friends say, wow, you know, I didn't think Trump was gonna be like that. Look at all the good judges he appointed and how good he is on religious liberty and the deregulation. If there's a segment of the non-college vote that went for him that doesn't care about those things. If they did, they would have been voting Republican all along. So what? When, Trump, when I read Trump's tweets now, I think all of the things that made him interesting to those people is gone. Uh, that even his opportunity to strike a nationalistic pose on trade uh, again with China uh, with respect to the coronavirus was floated as an idea early on. And then 
it just seemed to disappear from his campaign. That would have been uh, a way for him to put Biden in a difficult position as well as recover some of the economic and nationalistic populist interests that fueled this support. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, he chose not to pursue that and is instead basically a um, uh, running as a conventional Republican uh, who has a distasteful personality. And other than that, it's a great campaign. Uh, so one thing I would note, though, is that white non-college voters, like any large group, that's 40 percent of the electorate, is very diverse. And white non-college voters skew highly towards being evangelical Christians. So what Trump did was uh, improve the white non-college share largely by bringing in non-evangelicals into the Republican camp. Uh, and uh, what we're seeing is that those people who he brought in are often now the ones who are going back to Biden so that means that when we're thinking about states, is decline among white non-college voters in high evangelical areas like the South, North Carolina, or Georgia, he's going to hold on to a lot more of those people because that's the Bush constituency. That's the McCain constituency. He's going to lose a disproportionate share among the white non-college voters in the Midwest. So that's one reason why you might look and say, well, you know, he won Iowa by almost 10 points last time. Uh, he's only... Uh, Biden's only gained six points nationally on Clinton, so that means Trump should be winning Iowa. Well, no, because the type of voter he picked up is the type of voter that's disproportionately represented in the six points that Biden is gaining, which means the shift is larger in a state like Michigan or a state like Wisconsin or a state like Iowa, where these voters are a much larger share of the vote. That's yet another thing my Republican friends don't get. Um, and remain willfully blind about uh, more than a decade uh, after uh, what became painfully clear to me uh, what began defining our political era. And, you know, I think we'll see. I'm much more uh, doubtful that Biden will and can uh, hold this coalition together because I think the progressive urge within the party is much stronger. Uh, but, you know, I admit that I see things through a little bit of a red tinge, and uh, and I also um, consequently uh, probably underestimate the ability of Biden to adapt to all of this. But uh, you know, for right now, what we're seeing is uh, a lot of people who were what I called reluctant Trump voters didn't want him to be there, but decided to give him a shot, deciding that no, he has failed them, and that includes lots of people who rarely vote Republican, gave them a chance last time and are returning back to their fold. Okay, uh, I'm uh, pretty soon gonna turn it uh, over to the classroom there, if there's any, you have a small group of students, mm -hmm. Notre Dame students gathered. And uh, so class, if you have any questions, be prepared. Let me ask about a couple, uh, to both gentlemen, a couple specific issues and how these have impacted or if they have impacted or will mm -hmm. like impact the election. Um, uh, the Amy Barrett uh, nomination and now confirmation to the Supreme Court, has, has that had much of an effect? Um, the, uh, the, the Hunter Biden uh, scandal, that seemed to have potential to have a big effect, but that seems to have fallen flat. Uh, uh, Joe Biden's non-committed position on court packing, uh, have these things moved the needle at all? Not Henry, what do you think? 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, not in the slightest. <laughs> the thing is, they're all base issues. Um, nobody cares about the court except for partisans on both sides. The Democrats wisely decided not to have a public hissy fit like they did about Brett Kavanaugh. You know, had they done that, had you seen uh, demonstrations every day outside the Supreme Court and outside the Senate buildings and the sort of uh, over-the-top behavior that you saw in the Kavanaugh hearings, that I think would have gained public attention and played on the margin against them, but they chose not to. And I, they played it very smart politically. Uh, they didn't have the votes. They messaged to their base that they're opposed to it, and they didn't do anything that would scare the middle. Uh, Hunter Biden, you know, that's another one of these scandals that you will view entirely differently depending on who you want to see in the White House. For the Democrats, it's nothing to see. For the Republicans, it's proof of what they've always wanted to believe, that here's this corrupt person. And it's the flip side of the scandals about Trump, you know. Democrats believe that Trump is in Putin's back pocket. You know, I think that's absurd. It's an absurd reading of the evidence, uh, but they want to believe it. So they do. Um, and then, um, you know, the thing, the bottom line is that we've been hearing so many little events and what the backdrop against these events throughout four years has been is a recurring battle between Trump and the center of America that, Trump has an attitude towards governing that grates and a uh, personality that uh, uh, repels as much as it attracts. And all, you, when, if you think impeachment didn't break that very much, every story that's broken, the worst that's ever happened to Trump pretty much is that he goes down a little bit and then he recovers. Uh, and very little breaks through that's positive for Trump in part because there's never been a smoking, a real smoking gun. So I think those things were things that um, uh, have not broken through and will not break through. I, I just agree. I think that all three things you mentioned have had essentially zero effect or likely to have zero effect. And the race is just incredibly stable. People are locked in in terms of their view of Trump. Um, you know, maybe if Trump had spent the last two months like being the new Donald Trump and projecting an image of moderation and uh, sort of polite behavior, <laughs> I mean, that would have made a difference. But of course, we didn't see that and we're highly unlikely to see it. So no, none of this stuff matters. Absolutely none of this stuff matters. I mean, I think it's as simple as that. There were two chances that Trump's job approval rating was actually slowly on the rise pre-COVID. It was at his, it was moving up post impeachment. It was above forty five percent, moving up to forty six percent as people were reassessing him. And then COVID strikes. As I mentioned, every leader in the world knew what to do. That scared people need protection. Didn't it go up initially, Henry? A little bit. I mean, after yeah. even after COVID struck. I mean, that's what I was pointing yeah, out. Yeah, Six yeah. days. Six where days. Before, right. yeah. The six, you know, the six days at the end of March and the beginning of April, he hits a little over 47%, and he's finally at the level right, where right. you look and you say, okay, if he can keep this, he's got a coin flip shot of carrying the Electoral College. But then we have, you know, the daily cluster that emerged in his press briefing, you know, ingesting bleach and questioning Fauci and go, delivering five minutes, you know, he just couldn't handle it. And then ever since, even after he gets the disease, uh, he just seems unable to say, because he doesn't believe it, apparently, that um, we need to put safety first. 
doesn't necessarily even necessarily matter that the policies would be all that different. There are things that he could and should have done that would tilt the scale a little bit, but the American response hasn't been that different or that bad compared to most of our developed nations' peers, particularly given our federal structure, where there wasn't going to be a national lockdown. Uh, and Rui raises eyebrows, maybe he thinks that that's something Biden will address. Well, in which case, well. No, I just think we're not the same as the other. I think we've actually been worse, but you know, one could argue about how much worse, but anyway. I, uh, yeah, I, um, we will find out now that the rest of the world particularly Europe, is Fair going enough. through a massive phase of infection that we are not going through, and their death rates rapidly catching up to ours. Um, but again, but my point is that this is debatable. But right. what's, what's not debatable, I think, is that rhetoric is an important part of national leadership, and Trump failed. You know, early on in my career as a Post columnist, I made Jar Jar Binks trend on Twitter because I compared Trump's inarticulateness to Jar Jar Binks. And in a time of crisis, we had Jar Jar, not Obi-Wan. Uh, and I think that's, and, but even so, his job approval rating was inching up again going into the first debate. He was over 45% going on the mm -hmm. eve of the first debate. And uh, if he had continued that rate of improvement through election day, he, we'd be talking about a race where maybe polling error of one or two points could put Trump in reign for victory. And it's obvious to everyone in the entire world what he needs to do. He needs to pretend to be a human being for 90 minutes. Um, and instead we get what we saw in his ratings. It's like, boom, there's the wall. They went down a point and a half, they flatlined, and he's done. How much did that first out? Hurt Trump. It, was that a turning moment or a moment that really capped him? It, I think it's the moment where the last chance was squandered. There's there's another story I, I, I like to tell that I think is appropriate appropriate to the Trump behavior here, which is there's a guy on a on a house in a flood, and it, he prays to God to save him, and he's sitting there, and suddenly this boat comes by and says, "Hop in." Uh, you know, get off your, you know, the rudder's rising. And he says, no, God's going to save me. And he waves the boat on. And then there's a helicopter that comes by and it drops down a ladder and says, climb up, climb up. And he says, no, a miracle's going to happen. God's going to save me. And he waves the helicopter on and the waters come up and he drowns and he's at the pearly gates and he comes face to face <laughs> with God. And he says, God, why didn't you save me? And God says, God damn it. I sent you a boat and a helicopter. <laughs> You know, Trump has had the boat and the helicopter and the this and the that, and he sprays it. And that's why he's going to lose. And the last helicopter was that first debate. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I mean, after, I mean, like most people who sat down to watch this first debate, you know, I figured it'd be kind of interesting. You never know what Trump's going to pull. Yeah, maybe uh, this could be a turning. Maybe he'll like turn in a real stellar performance. Maybe, you know, who knows what will happen? It was and then after like about 10 minutes, you realize he's completely unhinged. This is like the worst possible way to play this debate. And he kept it up the whole 90 minutes. And, you know, after that, I mean, I was partly in shock, but also it's like, you know, as if someone who leans toward the Democrats, I was kind of like rubbing my hands. Okay, all right. You know, you blew that one big time. Uh, and, you know, my my level of anxiety about the election 
has ever since been somewhat less because I just feel like Henry that that was the biggest opportunity he had and he completely screwed it up. I mean, it was, I mean, the worst gaffes that politicians make or mistakes they make is when they reinforce already existing stories. <laughs> so that's really what he did, you know. Uh, yeah, no, it was really quite remarkable. I still can't believe it happened. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read some of the questions we have uh, from uh, members of our audience who have submitted via the chat function. I should say, too, if you want to ask a question, uh, if you, you can use the raise hand function, and then uh, we'll ask you to unmute yourself, and you can ask a question that way. But uh, a couple questions here. Uh, this one from uh, Jamie Queen, uh, Green. Uh, is there a risk of the polling not aligning to actual results due to the difficulties in voting due to COVID? Um, people not voting because they get the virus or just the complications. So how, how does COVID affect or does it affect the, the polling? Yeah, well, it's kind of like, that is kind of like a known unknown, the extent to which this might interfere. I mean, let's say that the signal coming from the polls is more or less correct. Or let's say there's some, you know, few points of polling error. I mean, I think there's actually good arguments why there'd be less polling error this time than last time around. But somehow the translation of that into actual votes gets screwed up because of all the different types of balloting and COVID and whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, you could tell a story about how that might be an influence. I find it hard to believe it would be enough uh, to actually, you know, make the signal that's coming from the polling results, you know, like super suspect. Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's a whole vector of things you could list about why the polls might be a bit off um, from repeating exactly the same mistakes of 2016 to, you know, things that are specific to COVID. But I think it's given the leads we see now, it's very difficult to see how those errors add up to enough to make the election close enough to give it to Donald Trump. So, you know, I'll just hedge my bets and say anything's possible, but is it likely? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, let's just do a little bit of math here, you know, which is say that ballots get screwed up all the time. You show up at the poll, you think you cast a regular ballot, but you didn't fill in the oval correctly, or you marked something, or you folded your ballot the wrong way. The fact is, even in, you know, I follow elections all around the world, and even in countries where all you have to do is take a slip of paper and put it in an envelope, which is the system in Sweden and Israel, where there's no ballot. You go walking and you take party papers with a symbol and you go behind the curtain or whatever it is, and in secret, you put whichever party you want in a ballot and you steal it. They still get almost 1% of ballots that are uncountable. People screw it up in some way. Um, there will be more of that because of mail-in, but how big of an error could that be? Is, you know, that, let's say that instead of a one or a one and a half percent ballot error rate, you have a 5% ballot error rate, which would be, I think, very high. That would mean applied to 50 million votes, you'd have two and a half million disqualified votes instead of, 500,000 disqualified votes. And let's assume that 70% of those are Joe Biden. You know, so there's a million, 1.4 million to 600,000. That's a net change of 800,000 ballots. Exactly, yeah, the net is just can't be big enough. To that's right. That's like half a tenth in a polling uh, or maybe 1% at most. My point, so my point is that, yes, it will happen. Yes, there will be some slight 
discounting of Democratic votes because of that. But you have to get to an absurdly high disqualification rate from mail-in ballot for it to be more than uh, a rounding error in the national results. Question just came in and it's right on topic, so let me ask it here. Uh, how concerned should we be about um, voter suppression, voting fraud, just problems with the mail delivery, um, uh, court interventions? Let me add my mm -hmm. own question to this. Will we know the who won on election night? Ah, well, that's a, two different questions, the voter suppression and, and will we know on election night. But let me take the voter suppression thing because it's something I've thought a lot about and read a lot about. And, you know, my perspective on this is I actually find it amazing the extent to which, you know, I'm not in favor, obviously, of a lot of the tactics that Republicans have taken to, you know, I mean, they do seem to be basically about suppressing the vote of Democratic constituencies. But the real issue is how effective these things are. And the, the meta studies, I mean, it's so much evidence now that it really doesn't work. You know, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't produce the outcomes that Republicans are presumably looking for. The counter reaction to these attempts to, you know, what are perceived as voter suppression activities is more than enough to cancel out the actual effects. It's very difficult to find evidence that this kind of approach by the Republican Party, even though they keep on trying it, actually like pays off. But, you know, Democrats always have their knickers in a twist about this stuff. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, so, for example, people might look at the data and say, oh, it looks like Biden's going to win. But what about voter suppression? No, it has nothing to do with it. They can't possibly, they're not successful. They don't know what they're doing. It doesn't really work. The idea you could steal the election through voter suppression is ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. So um, you can tell I feel strongly about it. It's because I hear it all the time. People are always saying, oh, what about voter suppression? Hey, don't worry. It's all right. You know, we got this. I mean, if he loses, it's not going to be because of that. So, And my, the flip side for that is I hear the... I think that um, I am not a believer in UFOs. Uh, so the Area 51 theory of, you know, that's this sec section where the government is keeping the secret about UFOs in someplace in Nevada. R Russian collusion and voter suppression are the democratic falsehoods that fit in the Area 51 conspiracy and voter fraud is one of the Republican ones. There is no evidence that there is substantial voter fraud in the United States. There's no evidence that there is organized in person uh, impersonation. There is no evidence that there is organized voter mail fraud. Do I think there are administrative screw ups? Absolutely. Do I think there are isolated cases where somebody goes off and does it at a low level race and a nonpartisan race or that the you know people on their own decide they're gonna vote in two different states intentionally or not? Yeah. Um, is it material? Not in the slightest. Um, so there's not going to be a result that is determined by fraudulent mail ballots, evil Republican voter suppression, or um, aliens or Russians hacking our computer systems. It's not going to happen. What about election night? Do we know who wins? Hmm. I think we will. Um, we we won't if it's really close because there will be so many mail ballots and provisional ballots that remain to be counted and would have likely remained to be counted regardless of COVID. That's the thing that people who aren't 
nerds like me and Rui don't recognize is there are millions of votes that are always counted after election because of our election laws. You know, provisional ballots, something that the help, is it HAVA that passed that? Help America Vote Act in 2002, Rui, that established provisional ballots. You know, there are millions of people who walk into the polling place and cast what's called a provisional ballot, uh, whereby they say they're registered, they're not on the polls, and they cast a balance, put aside, and then you check their eligibility afterward. Those are always counted after election day. Mail-in states always have hundreds of thousands in states and millions in California. So all we're doing is amplifying that. Um, If it's close, yes, we may not know, but it has to be much closer than the polls for that to happen. I think, actually, I think we'll know by 8.30 whether or not there's a chance of that happening because uh, Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida are must-win states for Trump. They all have experience in processing mail ballots and in-person ballots very quickly. They will release their results very quickly. And we'll be able to know based on what they've released by around 8.30 whether Trump's election day uh, vote margin will have a chance of overcoming the Democratic lead in the early vote. And if the answer in any one of those three states is no, Donald Trump will not win, no matter what happens elsewhere. Right. No, I agree with that, Henry. Uh, And I think that's what someone who's paying close attention would conclude based on these early results, but will the ele- will the networks call it? Do you think they'll be no, ultra they cautious? The networks will be ultra cautious, but on the other hand, um, they won't call it. But it will be it, increasingly even the ultra cautious networks will have to permit some of their on-air talent to say, "Well, we won't call it, but it sure would be hard for Trump to come from behind right. now yeah, that and stuff right. like that." So again, you'd have to be willfully blind if, you know, the event that, you know, if you're watching Fox and even the Fox on air talent is saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's a pony in there somewhere. Um, you'll be able to right. know if it's not called. Even Carl Rove won't say I've got, I've got the map <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> yeah, probably not. What, what yeah. the- well, I think Carl Rove learned a lesson in 2012. Um, yeah, yeah. You you both alluded to uh, Trump doing better with uh, African Americans. Uh, how much better do you think he's doing, uh, and why? Well, I mean, first of all, yeah, I mean, Latinos are a little bit different. The data is a bit stronger. I think that he's maybe doing a somewhat better than Clinton among Latinos. I think blacks, it's it's a lot harder to call. I mean, the trend line I'm seeing is that it's you know, it's pretty clearly firming up for for Biden. And I would not at all be surprised that he does about as well as, as I mean, Hillary had about an 80 point margin among black voters. I, I think that Biden will probably get pretty close to that, you know. Um, okay, but why is that in the sense that, you know, people hate Trump, presumably black voters don't like Trump. Um, you know, we've had this surge of activism around the issue of racism. The Democratic Party has been out there promoting this stuff, um, has been very firm on the side of the protests and so on. So if that's true, why would blacks not be like 95-5 for Biden at this point? Well, I think the answer is, you know, any group is complicated. There's always going to be people with somewhat different and diverse points of view, even among an extremely 
pro-democratic constituents who are like blacks. But I think one thing that's underplayed is the extent to which it was never clear that the George Floyd protests and the vector of issues around that were actually that popular among the, you know, with the median black voter. I mean, what does the median black voter want? They want a better life. They want public safety. They want jobs. They want health care. They want, you know, sort of rising incomes. They want a lot of the stuff everybody else wants, except they're more likely to be poor, right? So while some of these issues like defund the police or reparations or whatever um, animated a lot of the activist class, including among blacks, um, it was never clear that this was going to be the key to turbocharging the black vote. I think the assumption was that it would, that by raising the profile of these race-related issues and the struggle against racism, that that would somehow make the black vote for the Democrat like much, much higher than it normally would be, reaching Obama 2008 levels. I always thought that was a suspect assumption. I always thought that, in fact, you know, ordinary black voters you know, have a more ordinary set of concerns that it wasn't clear raising these issues were going to address, which isn't to say that the median black voter wasn't opposed to police brutality. Of course they were, you know, they're upset about it, but, you know, they've got a lot of other things they worry about too. And when they see like this, you know, sort of endless series of protests and these boutique demands around defunding the police, you know, if that's what Democrats are for, well, I guess, you know, that's okay, I guess, but it doesn't excite them that much. And I think that's really true for Latinos. Again, it's private, it's more grouped on men than women, but you know, it's like, what about me and my life and my community and my family? What are you gonna do for me? Um, again, it's not like Latinos aren't opposed to racism and police brutality, of course they are, but you know, the, you know, the offer they want made to them is much broader than that. And I think to some extent, Biden and the Democrats lost some time making that offer and making it clear to these voters because of how much time they felt they had to spend on the George Floyd protests, you know, dealing with issues around defunding the police. And just, you know, it, it just didn't speak directly enough to the most salient and central concerns of even the non-white constituencies that generally support the Democrats at all at a high level. So that's my rough and ready explanation. The non-white working class wasn't as down with this stuff as progressive activists thought they were. And that's one of the great Republican opportunities if they ever decide to wake up and look at reality, which is that there's a lot of things where working class voters of all races sit between the activists in both parties that you know, there's for them, it's not a question of socialism or libertarianism. It's a question of, you know, something like a modern adaptation of the Roosevelt Reagan consensus. Uh, and if the Democrats choose to be inside of that by focusing on things that excite the uh, woke base, uh, they lose touch with that. And if Republicans describe a world that doesn't resonate with those people or choose not to compete within that consensus, then they fall out of competition for those voters. You know, the one thing I would add to what Rui said is that it's been clear in the polls for quite some time that Trump has stronger job approval ratings among Latinos than you would think given the national conversation. This didn't arise in the last, he's been running above 30%, between 30 and 35% among Latinos job approval rating. 
going back well into 2019, if not 2018. And I think it gets, but that gets to, you know, what Rui was, is saying, you know, which is that, yeah, they might be concerned about immigration, but their number one issue was something else. And Trump was delivering on that issue. Does that mean that he's going to win Hispanics or put New Mexico in play? No. Does it mean that maybe he loses this important group by 28 points instead of 36 points? Yeah. In a race where Trump is competitive in other groups, um, you know, closer to where he was in 2016 among whites, maybe that's the difference in a state like keeping Arizona um, or flipping Nevada. But the fact is, He's gaining among Latinos. He's at worst holding his own among blacks, um, but he's losing among whites of all social classes and levels of education, and that's his downfall. We haven't talked about uh, women as a as a group, uh, a voting block. Uh, it struck me as interesting that just neither of you have focused on women. Why is why is that? I don't believe. Again, this is another one of these things where the media, who have very large numbers of educated liberal women, tend to overfocus on is that first of all, uh, the trend that women tend to be vote more on the left than men is an international one. Um, you can look at polls in almost every country, and you'll see slightly more women supporting parties to the left. Uh, secondly, uh, if you look at the 2016 exit polls, Republican women did not vote for Trump in less of significantly lower numbers than Republican men. Democratic women did not vote for Hillary Clinton in appreciably larger numbers than Democratic men. The difference was among independent women, that independent women voted for Clinton, independent men voted for Trump. In 2018, both groups shifted to the left. The men shifted farther and faster than the women. Um, and there are lots of reasons to understand why Donald Trump was likelier to win back some of the men than the women. But women are not a monolithic voting group. And to treat them as a monolithic voting group is to do disservice to them. Uh, and the subsections that you can identify uh, within women, uh, Donald Trump was largely not competing with, that he was not moderating his tone in a way or uh, that would attract back many of the independent women who could have been persuaded to back him who were college educated. And Democrats did an excellent job of focusing on concerns of non-college educated women and trying to cater this the marginal voter there who was tempted to go either way, saying that you get a better deal from us than you get from him. Um, but by and large, I do not think this is an election about women per se. It's an election about Donald Trump's failure to retain the reluctant Trump voter from 2016. And there's a host of reasons for that, from personality to losing, uh, you know, not delivering, to losing uh, his populist edge. And some of them are specific to women and many of them are not. Yeah, no, I, I basically agree with that. I think, yeah, this is a classic case where the media narrative tends to overstate what the data are really telling us. Um, it's certainly the case that women favor Biden more than men, and that's pretty true across all social groups. But then again, you know, that's generally true in most American elections these days. So the question that's worth asking about trying to understand this election is relative to baseline, who's, who's, who's moving, who's changing? 
Um, and the fact of the matter is, if you look at the data carefully, it's not just that women of various social groups, including non-white non-college, have moved toward Biden. It's actually men as well. I mean, Biden would not be doing nearly as well in this election if he simply moved women into his camp, uh, say suburban women, as opposed to suburban men as well. But while suburban men, for example, might continue to lag suburban women in terms of their, their Biden margins, they've also moved in his direction or white non-college men have, re, you know, his de Biden's deficit among those voters has been reduced as is his uh, deficit among white non-college women. So both genders have moved. Biden would not doing as, be doing as well as if he simply moved women. But people tend to focus on that because you can look at say college educated white women and you see margins, you see suburban women, you see you know, clearly pro-Biden margins, but it's not just about, you know, how much you're winning a group by in any given election. If you want to come discuss what's different about this election or the previous, you have to look at shifts. And in this case, the shifts are actually closer than you would think among uh, men and women of various social strata. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's why, I think as Henry said, uh, this election is best understood as people across genders uh, and among a, a wide variety of social groups bailing out on Trump, the people who were reluctant, the people who had questions, the people who weren't sure he was the right formula to begin with. Uh, and that's killing him. If he had just, if he had held all his male support, he'd be doing a lot better than he is, but he's not. So, you know, I, I mean, certainly I think, I mean, I don't know how many stories I've read about suburban women and, you know, this election and Biden versus Trump and so on. But, you know, it's just wrong. It's not just suburban women. They're, they're not, you know, this isn't what it's about. But, uh, you know, try to tell the people who write the stories about this. They, they've, got a, they've got a narrative and they're sticking to it. Okay, we're uh, getting short on time, but let me get a, a few more questions in. Uh, assuming um, uh, that you're both right, that uh, Biden wins and uh, maybe even uh, the Democrats take uh, the Senate uh, and, and certainly keep the House. Uh, mm -hmm. What happens to the Republican Party and conservatism? Ooh, good question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I definitely want to hear from Henry on this. Uh, Nicholas Lemon wrote an interesting story in uh, New Yorker that just came out about three possible paths for the Republicans in the wake of a Trump defeat. Um, remnant, like, you know, Trumpism without Trump, restoration, you know, the regular old Republicans take back over or reversal, which is a more interesting thing where they turn into this kind of populist working class party that would uh, let the Democrats keep the woke and the and so on. Uh, and the De Republicans would spread their message among the great working class. So, Henry, what do you think? What, what, what path do you see? Pushing the same or three prongs with different names. I call them the imperial successors, the restorationists and the young reformers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been arguing for a decade that the future of the center right in America and particularly and uh, even worldwide rests on some sort of conservative populist alliance, which is to say, recognizing that um, for a host of reasons, as long as the Democrats are open to private sector wealth creation, uh, social changes means that you can no longer build a um, 
classic center-right party that combines the well-to-do with the religious, that the well-to-do are actually opposed to the religious on a number of uh, important issues to them. And as long Mm -hmm. as the center-left is open to people acquiring large amounts of wealth through the public sector, uh, they'll vote center-left or even left of center. They won't vote for socialism, but they'll vote for social democracy. Um, And so the course for the center-right is to take the votes that are being left behind by the old workers party that increasingly it is difficult to both accommodate the left and the new uh, upper income suburbanites along with the traditional working class. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been writing for that for 10 years. I think that is a viewpoint that is having more is being heard more in a Republican party. And that will be one viewpoint that is argued strenuously in the next four years. There will be those who argue for restoration and there are two types of restoration. There's Romney restoration and there's movement conservative restoration. That's always argued that the problem is that we never nominated Ted Cruz or we never nominated somebody. And, um, you know, I've been dismissive of both efforts, but there are real people, you know, people who really believe that there's a strong factor in that, you know, the victory of people um, uh, like, you know, that's essentially what Christy Nome is trying to position herself as, as a person from the heartland who represents movement conservative values, you know, no masks, uh, freedom, yes, masks, no. Um, and then there's what I call the imperial successors, which will be more Trump, less tweet. Uh, there'll be different aspects of that. There'll be people who try and play up the personality aspects of Trump. There'll be people who play up, you know, the Trump legacy. Pence, I think, mm-hmm. is tied to being uh, more Trump less tweet. Um, and I think it's a battle. I don't know who how this is going to play out. You know, the fact though is that. No one faction can so predominate that the other factions don't see a home for it. Um, I think if either the imperial successors or the restorationists win, that the populist voters, as not necessarily populist leaders, but populist voters, will see that there's not a whole lot of home uh, for them in that constituency. Um, but I think that's where the contours is going to are going to lie, and. Nice thing about politics, you never know. It's always an uncertainty. We just don't know who's going to win. Okay, two two final questions, and then mm-hmm. we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, uh, what do we watch for on election night? You mentioned Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida. I think Henry mentioned those as must-wins. We had a question about Pennsylvania. Derek Webb, a Notre Dame PhD, wrote in with a question about Pennsylvania and that Trump seems to be doing well in some recent polls there. So uh, first question is, what should we be watching for on election night? Um, and uh, final question, uh, given diagnosis, you, you both seem to solidly predict a, a Biden victory. Is there anything that happens uh, or could foreseeable that could happen that changes that? Uh, how does uh, anyway Biden lose the Trump wins? Yeah. Well, again, I mean, I think that the only way, the likely way this would happen is, you know, some unknown unknown about the error that's built into polls, we just don't understand. So it's really been misrepresenting the electorate. Um, There is some data that show white non-college registrations have been quite strong, new registrants. Maybe this is an indicator of something we're not picking up. Um, But I think that's how it it happens. I mean, we get like 
this huge polling error that's like several times as large as in uh, 2016, and it just makes the election extremely close, and Trump manages to pull it out. But I think it's there's not a lot of data that supports that. I mean, efforts to find shy Trump voters that the polls are missing have so far been massively unsuccessful. I mean, various compare, you know, on, online robo poll, robo polls to regular polls. I mean, people presumably more willing to respond to a robo, but it's just not there. So I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but, you know, it's certainly possible. Um, you know, beyond that, I mean, what could happen? Where's the Comey letter? I mean, the Comey letter is one of the few, like, October surprises that probably really did matter. I mean, there's a very reasonable empirical case that the Comey letter, dropping as it did, when it did, with the backdrop of that election and the things that have been discussed, um, actually may have been the final thing that tilted the election, got those undecideds over to Trump's side and, uh, and, and and enabled him to win. You know, but what are they going to drop this time? I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's been the riots in Philadelphia. I mean, that just doesn't seem to have worked for the Republicans in Minnesota and Wisconsin. It hasn't really moved the needle that much in their direction. I'm not seeing that. I mean, maybe they find another Hunter Biden laptop, <laughs> two, three, many laptops. I mean, and they dropped those. I mean, you know, but it's, it's it didn't have an effect before. And where are they going to get these laptops? I mean, I guess there's a, you know, the, the blind guy may have a few other things, that, a few other laptops. But no, it's really hard to see at this point, you know, when we're breathing down the neck of the actual election day, something that could drop that would re really make the difference. So then I think we're back to the massive polling error. And that's something that there's some chance of. Uh, but it's unlikely. I mean, as for what do we watch in election night, I think Henry summarized it very well in terms of the early results. I think that's what you look at and look at those, you know, probable margins. And there'll be all kinds. I mean, one of the things that's a, a beautiful part of today's internet, there'll be all kinds of people like David Wasserman and Nate Silver and Nate Cohen. They'll all be on the internet crunching these numbers, looking at the county level results, looking at, you know, sort of whatever the exit polls have chosen to release at that point. Um, looking at other surveys that have been taken, and they'll have estimates uh, based on what's come in. What does the margin look like in Florida? What does the margin look like in North Carolina? And from that, you can extrapolate a lot. About and I'll be doing that live on the internet as well. You know, I'll be doing it live on the internet on my Twitter feed. Uh, right. uh, between six right and seven, <laughs> I will be doing it on the Washington Post's uh, um, uh, Columnist discussion from seven until whenever they shut it down, and then I'll go back on Twitter. I'll be armed with a county level result of I'll know how many registered voters are in each county. I'll have the 2016 results by candidate. I'll put in the early results as they come in, and if I can even get them on election day, I will have the county results of who actually voted. You know, what's the election day turnout? If not, I'll have an estimate of that. So I'll All be right. doing that. Uh, so, you know, that's the main thing I'll be looking at, because, by, again, by 830, when uh, all, uh, almost all of the early vote will have been reported in, in uh, Ohio, North Carolina and Florida, you know, the only part that may not be in, in Florida would be the early vote in the central time zone. But I think even by 830, as opposed to 805, because you know, the polls in the central time zone won't close until eight o'clock, whereas the polls in the eastern time zone close at seven. Um, I think by 8.30, even, you know, Okaloosa, Scamby, and Santa Rosa counties, the three big counties in the central time zone will have dropped, and those are Republican counties, and, we'll, uh, and I'll know 
whether Trump's can win Florida or not. The other thing I'll be looking at, though, is that there is evidence. Uh, you know, I, I've got um, uh, my intern uh, looking at these data, putting together, and there is evidence that registration as a share of the voter age population is up in key states. There is evidence that it is slightly tilted towards Trump-friendly regions. Yes. Um, in a state like Wisconsin, where usually tens of thousands of Democrats, I believe largely students, did same-day registration, if the, you may not see as many students registered to vote. There are evidence in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania that student-heavy counties have fewer registered voters today than they did four years ago, and I suspect that's not an accident. Again, on the margin, this will matter, but if it's close, you know, if it's not close, it won't matter. But what I'll be looking for is if the if there's going to be a shy Trump phenomenon, I don't think it's going to be. I think it's going to be that people have not accounted in their models this change in interest. I know from some proprietary data I have access to that. Voting by people who uh, are new registrants and by people who have not voted in the last four elections is up. And if that is disproportionately tilted towards Trump, that would be the source of polling error. And we'll have a sense of that uh, going into Election Day because you'll be hearing things like we've never seen so many people in county that you've never heard of. Pepin County in Wisconsin. Well, Pepin was one of those counties voted for Republican last in 1972, voted for Donald Trump. If turnout is way up on Election Day in Pepin County, that's an early indicator that maybe this white non-college surge for Trump is coming home. If it's not the case, that's, you know, the, the, the dog that didn't bark is as important sometimes as the dog that did bark. Okay, I got to ask one more question. Maybe this is from a generational perspective. Um, maybe on a hopeful note, at least for Generation X, is this the last presidential election which a baby boomer president candidate wins? Yeah, probably. Well, unless Biden runs again when he's 81. <laughs> Can't rule out anything, but uh, I'd say probably, yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's at this point, I mean, what's the youngest baby boomer? The youngest baby boomer or the youngest baby boomer demographically is uh, somebody who's a couple of years younger than me. So that person would be 63. Uh, that person would be um, 60 years old in um, 2024. Um, but culturally, they're not baby boomers, really. You know, baby boomers will tend to be a few years old. The question is, can you see somebody who is 65 or older winning the presidency in 2024? I'm not sure who that person is. You know, the, uh, in both parties, there seems to be a gap between the very old of the oldest boomers who are aging out of the political system and the millennial generation that is acquiring leadership positions. But if you can think of a 65-year-old who could plausibly take either party nomination, then yeah, you might have a baby boomer, uh, but it wouldn't be the classic baby boomer who... Uh, who came of age during Vietnam, it would be the classic baby boomer who was at the tail end of that, whose formative experience was the resignation of Nixon as opposed to uh, um, the summer of love. I think uh, it's time to get your bet down on someone from Gen X. Well, maybe that, that would be in Vegas, you know? That might be our next our next conversation. So uh, Rui Shashara, Henry Olson, thank you very much, gentlemen. It, it was a pleasure to 
uh, have you with us. Appreciate your insights and your time. Uh, and maybe we should make this a tradition. We'll see see you in two years, if not in four years. Okay, sounds great. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Mm -hmm.